Welcome to the Rehope Podcast. Before we dive into this week's message, we'd like to provide you with some helpful resources. If you'd like someone to pray for you, it would be our joy to connect with you. So please email us at prayer at rehope.co.uk. If you'd like to get connected with an online Bible read-through group from wherever you are in the world, you can email brt at rehope.co.uk and be a part of a small group of people reading through the Bible cover to cover each year. Finally, if you would like to support the work and ministry of Rehope financially, you can do so online at rehope.co.uk slash giving. We pray you find this message encouraging, enlightening, and helpful. Enjoy. Good morning, church. I want to pray a blessing over you as we get started today. May you know Jesus more fully. May you know his goodness in a way that gives you hope. May you know his help in every current need and prayer. And may he forever be leading you into more of him. Amen. Friends, it's so good to see you. Welcome. If we've not met, if you arrived just during the opening part, my name is Laura. I am just a few weeks back after a few months away. So please, if, I, if we've not met before, stick around at the end. I would love to say hello. I would love to get to know you. People ask me what did I miss most when I was away, and honestly, I miss the people most. So I think anytime any of us go anywhere from here on out, we'll just, we'll just all go. How about that? Um, and we'll take Jelly Hill's pesto chicken sandwich as well, because I also missed that. So good to hear from Mia this morning. So good to have Mia share and hear a little bit more about what God was doing in her life as she went off to YWAM. I, when I arrived here as youth arts worker, I think Mia was like 13, maybe 12, 13. Yes, just like on the precipice of being a teenager. And now, wow, I'm like, this is amazing. This is kind of surreal. We were at the same YWAM base at the same time. So we would occasionally run into each other, like at the vending machine or something, and just have a moment where we'd be like, what, what is this? What is going on? Where are we? What is happening? It was uh, so special. If I can pass on one encouragement, though, as the 31-year-old who went to Youth with a Mission to do a DTS, I would say, you're not too old. You're not too young. You're not too single or too married or too childful or childless. If God is leading you into something, you can trust him. And it might be uncomfortable. It might be like it remits uncomfortable, but it will be okay, and he will care for you. There's so many things. I feel like when Jesus was on the earth, there was so many times when people were like, this won't work because Jairus's daughter is already dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore, or Lazarus has been in the tomb already for three days, or we've only got like this one boy's lunch. Like, how could we feed all these people? And yet it didn't seem to matter if God willed it, then he was able to do it. And so I'm so comforted that he doesn't work by all of the like age and stage markers and timelines that we like to apply so much. Going into YWAM though, I did and I didn't really know what to expect. I expected that there would be young people and there were. I was in a year group of 250 students and half of them were 18 and the other half were anything from 18 to like beyond. And I feel probably out of that more in tune with Gen Z than I will probably ever be again. I know now that some things are mid and some things are gas, at least in America. Um, I know that uh, 
I heard one guy describe high praise worship, so worship where you're like just like singing about how good God is. He described it as getting lit about how God is lit. And I was like, wow, Gen Z. There were young people. There were young people. I was right about that. I thought there might be some like Holy Spirit firsts as well. Um, I hadn't grown up in a super charismatic background, so I'm still kind of having some of those firsts. Uh, so going into YWAM, I was like, maybe there'll be a fire tunnel or maybe I'll be slain. And there were some firsts, um, not those firsts, but there were some firsts. I had my first time using a squatty potty. That was a first. Uh, but generally, the experience was more like stepping into a steady flowing stream with the Lord than a tornado, which was actually very nice. And in that, it was like not all new big things, but actually like the small things that actually are the big things and the simple things that actually are the profound things, and the things that you know, but you just need to know more. There's no limit in how much you can actually know them. Before I even had plans to go, Abby Bull, who some of you will know, she prophesied over my next season, over our next season, and said that God would be bringing me into the, a season of learning that I desired. And then a guy called Tim McDonald, who is the pastor at a Jesus church. We had some guys from a Jesus church just here um, the last couple of weeks. He spoke the word value over my time, over my sabbatical specifically. And he was like, I think this might be, like, maybe this is to do with, like, God helping you understand your value. So I thought, okay, maybe that'll be a theme. Um, but honestly, as I look back and as I assess and as I'm still sort of, like, pulling out like what were the major themes, what was God speaking, I feel like those words and what God was doing was much less to do with me learning my value in him and much more to do with me learning Jesus's value more, like just knowing it more, like knowing it, knowing it, knowing it, like just kind of like circling in the loop of knowing it. I feel like I was in a greenhouse with Jesus for six months. He revealed it to me through immersion, like immersion in his presence, in the way that my brother learned French in school, but then he came back from France speaking French like a French person. I feel like I had six months of greenhouse immersion in Jesus's presence, and out of that, it was like he just kept bringing me back to his value. And in that, and out of that, speaking over me, the very simple identity, you are a worshiper, you are a worshiper more than anything to do with your job or what you do or what age you are or stage you're at or where you live or whatever. You are a worshiper. I want you to take hold of this as the most true thing about yourself. View your life through this because although life will change, that is solid ground because if I am a worshiper, that's an identity I've been given. I've not earned it. And it's in relation to him and he doesn't change. So although sometimes it's going to feel natural and feel easy and other times it's going to feel incredibly difficult, that will be the choice for my life. Once I have decided he's worthy, the choice I will have to make is will I worship? Today's message you'll see is called Extravagant Love, Our Life as Worshippers. And that's because I've sort of been marinating in the story of the woman who brings her alabaster jar of perfume to Jesus. I've been marinating in that for the last number of months. And my very straightforward prayer for us and for the next generation in this city is that we would be people who would recognize Jesus as worthy. And we wouldn't just sing 
that he is worthy, but that as we look at him, we would want to bring the jar of our life, of our lives, and break it, and not just let go of a little bit, but actually like pour until it's done. I'm going to go to the Bible. Um, We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, if you do have your Bible there and you want to look it up, but I'm just going to pray first. Holy Spirit, would you reveal Jesus to us today? God, as we look at this story again from Scripture, would you do something in this room that would help us not look at this like it is a story, like a far-off, removed thing? But God, would you help it be real to us today, that we would not watch what this woman does from a distance, but it would be like we're looking at you and we're choosing how to respond. Holy Spirit, help us. Amen. I'm going to look at three different accounts because I think each carries something a little bit different, but we are in Luke chapter 7 first, verse 36, and it says this, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The story starts in Luke's retelling of it with her audacious choice to come to where Jesus is. There's no word of an invitation. I don't know if it would have been an open house, but he's at a Pharisee's house. And Luke, as the author here, highlights her sin for whatever reason. Jesus has not come to her, but she has come to him. She learned that Jesus was there and she chose to come. She learned that Jesus was there and she chose to bring the jar with her. When I think of what inspires acts of extravagant love from a worldly perspective, I think of emotional over-the-topness. I think of infatuation, hormones, honestly. Or I think of that old couple walking down the street holding hands who we take a sneaky photo of because decades and decades of commitment have fueled this intense and meaningful attachment that they have. But in this scene, it's not an in-the-moment, spontaneous response. She's not also had years and years and years around Jesus for love to grow. 
But as she was, with what she'd seen of him so far, she believes and she chooses. In our life as worshipers, extravagant love for us will be a choice because our emotions will come and go and we will never know enough or see enough of who Jesus is to not have to trust and believe and choose him. For the purpose of today, I'm saying that to love extravagantly is simply to love without restraint, to not hold anything back. And in worship, that is that kind of love expressed for Jesus, and that reaches into every area of our lives, all that we are. And if worship isn't just something that I do, but if I am a worshiper, then I have a bigger choice to make than, it, than perhaps will I go to a place of worship, or even will I worship? But I get to choose what sort of worshiper will I be? Will I bring some, but not all? Or will I set my life on loving him without restraint, without holding anything back? Because it will be a choice, and it will be my choice, but more than one choice, it will be a million little choices. Stories like this woman's, Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, her story will be told. And her story, stories like this, are built on choices. The woman hears where Jesus is, and she had a choice, to go or to not go. To go now or to go later? To go into a Pharisee's house or to wait until Jesus was somewhere else? To go uninvited or just accept that it wasn't meant to be? To hold off until he came to her or just to go to where he was? She had a choice to go empty-handed or to bring something. And then how much do I bring? How much do I give? How much do I pour? Some people say that this alabaster jar would have been her diary, like basically her future. Um, the finances for her future that would have secured her future. We know that it was worth more than a year's wages because we're told that whatever it was literally worth, whatever it was worth to her, she chose to bring it. She was ready because she brought it with her. And in her choices, there were certain risks and there were mixed responses. And as we follow Jesus, we will have to weigh similar things. What is the risk here? What might the response be? in the big things in life, but also in like the little everyday things. I want to go on my knees in worship, but what is the person beside me going to think? Or I want to be completely upfront about my faith, or I want to offer to pray for my friend who needs something, but what if they think I'm crazy? What if they reject me? What if they don't want to be my friend as much afterwards? What if they think it's weird? Or I want to honor God with this part of my life, but what if insert your particular fear here. What if it never happens? What if my children don't understand? What if my family don't understand? What if I lose everything? What if it doesn't work? What if I didn't hear him right? These things are real, and that's why we have to choose. I think sometimes we think, I definitely think sometimes if we have to choose something that it's somehow when it comes to love or when it comes to worship, if we have to choose something, it makes it less sincere. Like it should just flow out of us. Maybe have thoughts like if I sit here and I was to, if I was to sit here and plan ways to share Jesus with people this week, wouldn't that be a bit like forced? Shouldn't, shouldn't I just do that because I want to do it? Or I can't just choose to put my hands up in worship because surely I should feel like doing that, right? Or God, I feel disappointed. Honestly, I feel like crushed 
by disappointment. How can I sing King of My Heart on a Sunday and sing the words, you're never going to let me down? Surely I don't mean it. But at the end of the day, if something is true, it is true. And so if Jesus has said, go and make disciples, he's maybe, he's less concerned with my spontaneity as he is with my obedience. Or if, if God is worthy of my adoration, then he just is worthy. And so if I choose to do anything in worship, whether it's hands up, hands down, still, moving, dancing, flag waving, whatever I might choose to do, if I choose to do that as an act of humbling myself or exalting him or whatever it may be, it's not insincere so much as it is me using my will to align my emotions to what is actually true. Or if I feel disappointed, it is still true that those who hope in the Lord will not be put to shame. So I can sing those words if I want to. And day by day, a million little choices like that build like a like a train, like carriages, carriage after carriage after carriage that build a faithful life onto the Lord. And when I think about lifelong faithfulness, I think of Daniel. I think of his story. Because when I read the book of Daniel and when I see what happens in his life, more than anything, I see him choose. Chapter one, like right as the story kind of begins and the scene is set, it says Daniel resolves, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And then when God, uh, when he's banned, when prayer to anyone or anything but King Darius is banned, Daniel chooses to get down, his, down on his knees three times a day just like he did before. And I see throughout Daniel's story, like he's incredible and God uses him in incredible ways, but it's not his spiritual gifting or his popularity or his anointing that ultimately set him apart for God. It seems to be that he chooses in a land of idol worship and ever-shifting cultural sand, Daniel chooses to be set apart. And we see in him that this process of sanctification, of God setting us apart, making us holy, happens with our participation as we choose and choose and choose and choose him. So just as a side note, if there are any situations, if there's a situation in your life where maybe you are waiting on God to override your will, he might not. He might be inviting you and drawing you to choose him. I think sometimes there's things in life where we think things like, if God wants to close the door, he'll close the door. And things like that can't be true. But also there's times where he's given us our will and we have to choose. In the Christian Standard Bible, in its version, this woman's story in Luke is called Much Forgiven, Much Love. And that is so much the focus of how Luke tells the story because he shows this little aside that Jesus and Simon have, this conversation where Jesus says, look, her great love is coming out of the fact that she knows she has been forgiven much. It's in response to the much that she has received. Let's read Matthew's account. So it's in Matthew 26, verses 7 to 13. And it says this, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. 
When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She comes with her very expensive perfume, Matthew tells us. And she pours it on Jesus' head. And the disciples are like, why this waste? But Jesus sees it differently. He says she has done a beautiful thing. Meaning when we bring what we have, when we bring all we have, and when we don't hold back or dilute our lives to do the Jesus thing like a culturally acceptable amount, he says it's a beautiful thing when we go all in. It's a beautiful thing to him. But if we love the Lord without restraint, the world will probably say you're too much. It's too much. But if it's true, if it's true, that the God of the universe saw me in my mess and in my need for him and in my cycles of brokenness and in the things that I could not stop by myself and in the things I could not fix for myself and he sees us in the evil of the world and the brokenness and the pain and he came and died so that we could be free, so that I could know him forever, the God of the universe, if this is true, then wholehearted Christianity, I think, is the only sensible response. And when we read through the New Testament, I don't see anything else. You see Jesus' disciples, they have breakfast with the risen Jesus. They eat with him, and then they go on to die for him. Or Paul, the Apostle Paul, talks about his life himself being poured out like a drink offering. Naturally, I think more in terms of enough. Am I doing enough? Am I faithful enough? Am I on fire enough for the Lord? But if I'm thinking enough, I think I'm still sort of thinking earning. Am I worshiping enough to please God? Am I doing enough to appease God? Am I doing enough to prove myself somehow? And enough thinking is also self-focused because I'm thinking, am I this enough? Am I that enough? Am I, am I, am I? And I wonder if we just would look at Jesus, our hands would open and we would let go. In Revelation chapter four, you read about the four living creatures who are just covered with eyes. And when they look at the throne, when they look at God on the throne, they just worship saying, holy, holy, holy. And it makes me wonder if this woman here in this story, if she'd been introspective in Simon's house, She'd been thinking about herself like I do, like the, am I enough? Am I this enough? Am I doing that enough? She, if she'd been introspective, she maybe just would have been in a corner thinking about her sin. But she looks at Jesus. She knows what she's seen of Jesus. And so instead, she comes as a worshiper and she pours out and her response says, worth it, worth it, worth it. It helps me it makes me want to change my prayers from, God, help me follow you. Help me be faithful. Help me worship you as you're due to just show me Jesus. Show me Jesus. Because if I see him like she saw him, I will just, I will pour. Extravagant love will look like too much. But I see this kind of too much all over our church. And it challenges me because it will be too much it will be too much to continue to praise God during a season of grief. It will be too much 
to wait and wait and pray and pray and pray when you've not seen anything happen. It will be too much to hear God and quit your job and move your family somewhere else. It'll be too much to keep giving even when everything, everything, every cost, every possible cost is rising. It'll be too much to get off the cultural bus and be like, no, I've resolved. I'm not going to do that. It's too much to trust an unseen God until you see Jesus. And then you know it's actually just the right amount. I'm going to read in Mark chapter 14 now, the last account that we'll read today. It starts in verse 3, 14 verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. She breaks the jar. She did what she could. What she has done will be told anywhere the gospel is preached. Extravagant love is active. Bob Goff, his famous book, he would say, love does. If we're active, we're engaging, or we're ready to engage. And when we withhold love, it's not usually because we've decided to, because we're making a conscious effort to withhold. It's because we've learned to be passive. I notice this in myself all the time. I've learned passivity like a bad habit. I'll see something that needs done and everything in me wants someone else to do it. Or I'll see something that I could fix and I just wish someone else would fix it. Or I know that there's many ways that I could show love or encourage this particular person, but I don't want to in my heart of hearts because I'm proud or I'm scared or I'm lazy. But Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we see that love is not passive, love is active. If you just even look through the book of Mark, where we've just read from, like we see him, uh, he announces the good news, he calls disciples, he drives out an impure spirit, he heals many, he prays, he heals a man with leprosy, he heals and forgives, eats with sinners, calms the storm, raises a dead girl. Even just as you read through the different titles in the book of Mark, we see how incredibly active he was, pouring out love in action right up to his death and resurrection for us. And if we copy him, we will live life on the edge of our seats, watching, waiting, looking. Where can I be about my master's business, fueled by his unconditional love for me? In Luke's account, he writes in verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. He like zooms in on this where she is crying and not just a little but like a lot, <laughs> enough to like bring actual moisture <laughs> out of her face onto his feet. She's weeping, she's crying. And if we just picture that scene for a second, she's behind him, she's crying, she brings her tears, she brings her affection, and then she pours out the perfume. Now I know and I trust that Jesus is coming back. 
And either he will come back and I will see him, or I will die and I will see him. But either way, I'm going to see him. And when I stand before him someday, I want him to find me faithful. And I know that on that day, I will worship him. I will worship him. But for now, before I see him face to face, before I see him in that perfect way, it's so simple and yet it's so hard. We get to choose Does he get my worship through my resources? Does he get my worship through my affection? Does he even get my worship with my pain? Does he get all of my pain? It's one thing to worship when we see breakthrough and provision and when the world feels good. (laughs) But it's quite different to stand as she stood and to worship with our tears, to worship through our pain. But it is worshipful to bring all of our pain to him. Because in it, we're saying, I still choose you. I still choose you. I still love you. And it might not be pretty, but I still choose you today. Just as I wrap up, or prepare to, earlier in Luke chapter 7, there's this scene where John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and they ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we be waiting on someone else? Are you the promised Messiah? Are you going to save us? Or is there someone else coming? And Jesus doesn't say to them, Yes, you got it. It's me. (laughs) He says, go back and tell John what you've seen. That the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus wanted people to see and to hear and to recognize him for who he was. And this woman in this story has recognized Jesus and she has responded to it. So the invitation is to not waste time. If we've seen him, if we've heard, if we know in our heart of hearts that we have recognized him as who he is, then let's not waste time. There's a challenge today, a couple of things. Number one, if there is a choice that you have been putting off, that God has put on your heart, don't hold off any longer. Maybe for you it is giving your life to him and being like, yeah, I With what I know, with what I've seen, I know I cannot know perfectly and I know I cannot know everything, but I will choose to believe and to trust. I'm gonna choose him today. Maybe you've been far away, maybe you've drifted and you're like, I need to come back to Jesus today and I need to make it today. Maybe he's been putting something on your heart that you need to do in order to not be withholding love or withholding worship. Do it today. And then secondly, ask God, is there any area where I am withholding love from you or from other people? Jesus says to Simon, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And when I was looking at this yesterday and just looking over things, I was struck by the fact that we can can hear all the things and we can know all the things and it's good in theory, but actually what this woman had was a revelation of how much she'd been forgiven. She had a revelation of what Jesus stood for and meant for her and her great love came as a response to the fact that she had been forgiven of much. And so before we go into a response time, I just want to pray that God would reveal that to us too, that we would understand in a fresh way. Jesus, we look at you right now, just in this place. Would you help us to fix like the eyes of our heart on you? 
Holy Spirit, come. Help us to see Jesus. And would you plant in us a fresh understanding of our need for you, of our need for a savior. Would you plant in us, would you give us a fresh sense of wonder at the fact that you came for us, that you came for us when we were lost and when we were far from you and when we could not, no amount of sacrifices or blood or anything that we could do would be enough. Holy Spirit, help us to understand what Jesus has done. Give us a fresh revelation of that today. And where we need to respond to you, Lord, where we need to choose you again, help us, draw us, work in our will today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.